Welcome to Seeding the Future, a podcast from the Charter Cities Institute, where we explore how giving and philanthropy is changing as wealth is created in new industries at younger ages and by more diverse demographics. We'll hear from donors, thought leaders about moonshot philanthropy, about creating new institutions, reforming old ones, and much, much more. Hi, I'm Sky. I'm your host for the show. I'm the head of development at the Charter Cities Institute. I'm a policy wonk, an unlikely fundraiser, a Charter Cities advocate with 10 years of experience in foreign policy and international development, and hopefully improving a stand-up comic. Seeding the Future will remain right here in the Charter Cities Institute feed. So just keep subscribing to the Charter Cities Institute podcast on your favorite platforms to never miss an episode. Today, we're talking to Sidsy Brandy, the founder of GitLab, a Silicon Valley unicorn, who's also a supporter of the Charter Cities Institute. GitLab is a DevOps software company that recently went public. And among the many things that it's famous for, two are particularly relevant for our talk today. The first is the commitment to transparency, and the second is GitLab's famously fully remote workforce. Thanks for coming on, Sid. Wanted to kick off with a conversation about what everybody has their eyes on right now in Ukraine. GitLab is one of the first partially Ukrainian unicorn, and I'm sure that there are a lot of employees that are probably in the Ukraine now. What is GitLab doing to help them out? I know that many people are remote, but what are you guys doing to help the folks out? Thanks for having me, Sky. Yes, Ukraine is certainly top of mind. I'm distraught by what I'm seeing in the news. It's horrible to see. We have 13 Ukrainian team members, and we're in constant touch with them to make sure we help them in any way we can, including economic support. And so far, they're all safe, but it's certainly a big worry. And apart from the direct team members, they also have families and friends. So it's horrible to watch the events unfolding there. And on that note, is there anything specifically that's come across your plate recently that folks that want to help people in Ukraine, is there any way that you would suggest to them or ways people might just not know about? There's lots of things that are happening and people are self-organizing when there was a call to offer housing. I think we got 13 pages of team members offering up their homes to receive people. Um, There's individually led initiatives to purchase good in Poland, Romania, and uh, have them shipped. And my foundation is matching donations of team members that are donating because of the war. That's great. And one of the things that I think we're seeing too, is that there is a global involvement at a sort of unprecedented scale, also from crypto donations to Elon Musk, Starlink. What do you think the role and the influence of companies and nonprofits in this conflict is? Is it different? Is it similar to what it used to be? We have all kinds of new technologies for this. It certainly feels like it's different than it was before. There's a lot of things happening that I've not seen before. And there's a lot of companies that are extremely thoughtful about what they're doing. It's been amazing having you a part of Charter Cities Institute and your vision, I think, as a philanthropist is very unique and very forward thinking. One of the things I'd love to hear about is what drives your philanthropy? What is the why behind it? Is there a certain value set that you've always had or maybe even experience that got it started? I want to make a difference and I want to focus on something that has a high impact and where I can make a bigger difference. And I think if you look at the Charter Cities Institute, I'm very interested because of the Copenhagen consensus. If 
people were allowed to move to areas of higher productivity, we could double the GDP of the world. About 15% of the world population would move from a lower income to a higher income region. And we know that their income would greatly increase. Doubling the world's GDP is one of the most impactful innovations you can make. The only thing I can think of that's bigger is AI. Now, artificial intelligence or general artificial intelligence already has a ton of people focusing on it. I think relative to that, there's too little focus on this great possibility. So really great to see Charter Cities Institute and really proud to be supporting your efforts. Thank you for that. And how does that fit into, I mean, you are a fully remote company. You always have been, you've really led the way in this. How do you see the emergence of new cities, the ability for people to move more and the possibilities for nonprofits, for for for-profits to think more creatively about using remote work? Yeah, we were an all remote company all from the start and we figured out that it was very possible. And after COVID, companies figured that, hey, they can just do their regular tasks. So right now we're really focused on helping companies facilitate informal communication while being all remote. The more companies don't return to the office, the more opportunity there is of people who work on low income areas to join these companies who tend to pay high incomes. And the ability to work remote for these great companies is a great enabler of increasing the income in low income areas. If you work in a low income area today, you mostly work for companies who are based there. If your pick is any company in the world or any knowledge company in the world, that's a great enabler. Also, if you work for a company that works remote, you're much more able to move. If there is a charter city that appeals to you, you now have the option to move there without losing your job. It's interesting. I'm sure that anecdotally, you have lots of stories of folks that are working for GitLab that are changing their communities in all kinds of ways, because like you said, they're not working for a company in their area, they're working for you guys. And that means that they're interacting with people from all over the world. So it's sort of interesting to think of that on a much larger scale when you have tens of companies doing that. It's a fundamental shift in culture all over the world. And of course, GDP. For sure. Apart from the economic effects, it's also really heartwarming to see people moving back to family so that their children can be close to their grandparents so that they can support their parents in any health issues that they're going through or just being close to family and where you were born and raised. And the ability of people to do that is really encouraging. Also, the ability to escape areas of conflict and escape prosecution is amazing. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about the family thing as much, although I think COVID plus being able to work remotely, it's also making people reprioritize what really matters, but also not have to give up on something like their career and maybe even do better in that, which is amazing. You have a wide variety of interests and ways that you want to have impact in the world. You have nutrition company, you have software for cities, you have a new cryptocurrency, I think, and you have nonprofits that you support. So how do you think about the range of impact areas? I'll do anything where I can make a difference. And that's both the initiative having a big impact and it not happening without me to a certain extent and kind of the product of those two. For example, the cryptocurrency is called Global Income Coin and it's very early. It's a bit implausible. It's extremely hard. 
But if it would work, it would unleash over a trillion dollars a year to redirect it to humans, mostly in lower income areas. It is something that would be highly impactful. I think my support right now is essential. And although the odds are maybe not so great, the impact is great enough that I think it's very worthwhile to invest time. It's a really interesting question. As a philanthropist, what are the things that you can do that you can offer because of your interest, because of your skill set that maybe nobody else can? And it just sparks that question, I think, for all of us, too, like, where do we add value in the world? And I think there's a lot maybe that don't and people put money into the same cause areas or what has always been. And one of the changes we're seeing now is that wealth is being generated at a much younger age and folks aren't giving to the opera and the symphony and the hospitals in the same way they're giving to new things. What are your thoughts about wealth being generated in Silicon Valley, in tech companies, and where you think people will be giving? I think that if you look at Silicon Valley, what you see is that the impact of being able to invent something one time and then replicate it many times over, the best example being software, but there's other ideas that really help. And if you want to have an impact at scale, the scale that you can reach with software, with ideas, with innovation tends to be really, really big. So I think that mindset is something that people who are wealthy because of Silicon Valley can bring to philanthropy. One of the things that we talk a bit about at Charter Cities Institute, because we spend a lot of time sort of in the nonprofit world, the DC world, and also in Silicon Valley, is this lack of communication or a different way of seeing the world, let's say, between nonprofits and more entrepreneurial, certainly founders. What could we do better? What could those in the nonprofit space or in Silicon Valley do better to build the bridge between nonprofits and Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think for a very long time, not-for-profits tend to be very input-focused. You see that over time, they shift their focus to fundraising, where that becomes the activity that is best compensated. You can also see it in how they even think about efficiency. If you look at not-for-profits, when they talk about efficiency, they talk about what percentage of their inputs are spent on management. On one hand, that makes sense. On the other hand, in a software company, you, you spend a lot on R&D, although you might see that as overhead, it's what makes you effective. So I'm really impressed by the research that organizations like GiveWell are putting out where they really focus on outcomes and on getting the biggest possible outcome per dollar going into it. If you were to give some advice from a donor's point of view to nonprofits, would that be it? Make sure you're focusing on what the outputs are and let me know what the impact is more strongly than what you're spending money on in fundraising, for instance, or are there other advice that you would give them? I'm very new to this space, although I have some opinions. I don't think I can give generic advice that would add much. Another question along those lines, but I think it's probably quite relevant to just generally investing in teams, whether it's nonprofit or startups. What do you look for in a team or what if you see that in a team, do you say, nope, that's not for me or that's a red flag? There's lots of things. If I talk with someone and they didn't quite understand something and they don't ask for clarification, but they change subject or something like that or try to avoid it, I think curiosity is a really important skill if you're going to do something new and groundbreaking. So I try to seek that out. I find it really important if people 
are able to articulate what's not going well, what the risks are. In order to solve problems, you have to acknowledge them. It's important that people are consistent, that they're able to keep focus and sustain an effort over time. I can see where all of those would fit in in multiple different worlds as key indicators for the potential of success or if something doesn't work, being able to pivot and have something work better. It's interesting because one of the things that in starting this podcast I wanted to explore was that there's all this really interesting history around philanthropy. We think of many of the largest philanthropists in this country were deeply involved in development. They were involved in infrastructure development, roads, hospitals, bridges, schools, all of that. When you think about philanthropy and sort of the next things that it's going to be involved in, what are those things? What are the things for the next century of philanthropy? There's a lot. I mentioned general artificial intelligence, which obviously is a really important space, and we see more and more initiatives around that. What specifically about it? Because AI is not my space. What specifically around AI do you think will get the most attention, but also be the most impactful for the general population? Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn recently launched a new initiative around it. But the one that most comes to mind is OpenAI. And OpenAI started as a not-for-profit, but they had the problem that in order to stay on the leading edge of AI, you need to train models and it costs a lot of money. So they had to adjust. I think those questions are really tough ones that philanthropists and philanthropy initiatives are faced with. How do you, on one hand, do the right thing as a company, and on the other hand, able to compete with for-profit companies? With, for example, Global Income Coin, it is a not-for-profit. As a not-for-profit, you probably want to enable the private sector to augment you. And so right now with Global Income Coin, we're really focused on exchanges with a for-profit initiative, helping with marketing, securing, and making all of this work. And I think that probably gets into, for a lot of not-for-profits too, what you were saying about it's very easy to start chasing the funding. And if you start chasing the funding, then do you lead yourself towards the bleeding edge or do you lead yourself towards the funding, which may or may not be the bleeding edge? And then that can, without some like really clear steering of the ship, can start going off in a different direction quite rapidly. Yeah. And also, if you start a for-profit company, there's a lighter version of that, a public benefit corporation. And I think that is really hard and we're still figuring that out. But I think over time, we're going to see more of that, where you enable the company to leave money and profit on the table for certain goals that you specify up front. That's really interesting. I don't know a lot about them. So tell me more about how well they're doing, how many are getting started And what are the primary sort of targets of what they're aiming for? What are the goals? I think it's still very early, although public benefit corps have been around for a very long time. I think it's still very early in that. And there's been even some setbacks. If I remember correctly, Etsy was a public benefit corp and changed that, although I'm not sure about that. I do see it as a very powerful tool. And I've looked, for example, at starting a for-profit company in a space that's really, really tricky. And I'm trying to address those concerns by making it a public benefit corp so that they could forego 
opportunities that made it tricky. How does that work from an investor perspective? I assume the investors are then signing on for that clearly, and they know that, and that's why they're choosing the company. I guess it just changes the profile of the investor. It changes the profile of the investor. It changes how much revenue they're going to make. So it's a less attractive investment. So they'll raise at a lower valuation. There will be more dilution and things like that. Also, if you're talking about tricky sectors, sometimes those investors are prohibited upfront from investing in those, although that's not a one-for-one match and it differs per investor. So it will make it harder to attract investment. How are those particularly different than ESG funds, for instance? I think the ESG funds tends to be more narrowly defined, and that's becoming a more standardized market. That seems easier. And at some point, that might be like a premium because there's regularly invested and ESG funds, and they can both invest in you. You'll have a higher valuation instead of a more limiting thing if you put in a lot of public benefit corp restrictions on the company. It's interesting in this line of thinking around philanthropy in the future, we're having the largest handover of wealth from baby boomers to millennials. $30 trillion is going to pass in the next one to three decades, and it's already passing. What do you think the next generation is going to put that into from a more traditional sense? Or do you think that more people are going to go for the AI or is there going to be a hybrid? I don't think that traditional philanthropy will go away, but certainly there's going to be more room for experimentation. It's also, it might become more individualized, just like our food is less general meals and more artisan peanut butter. I think something similar will Bunch happen of advisors. in philanthropy. This is interesting because I was talking with John Arnold the other day about this question, and he was saying very similar, I think, that there is this mismatch between folks that are wanting to give, nonprofits that are wanting money, but they're actually not really being a great connection between the two. And there being some community foundations that do a really good job, and there also being a lot of opportunity for maybe it is the artisanal peanut butter model, where you have better information flows between those two groups. I had a traditional philanthropy like an opera was a way to get in touch with the elite in your city a gala is a way to have a really nice dinner with nice performance and feel good about what you're doing those methods will not go away but i think for example for me the charter cities institute apart from supporting the goals it's also been a way to meet some people who are really interesting who care about the same things i care about and really broaden my perspective. So there's something of a networking service. If you look at service clubs like Lions or Rotary, there's something like that, but then more on a scale beyond just the city where you live in. It's interesting because I think that Lions and Rotary membership has dramatically gone down. So then the question is, what is going to take the place of that? And maybe there are going to be these nonprofits or things that step in and Previously, you had a lot of philanthropy that was much more place-based because wealth was created in a certain place, and then it naturally led to more place-based philanthropy. Not that that's not happening right now, but this is an interesting question. When wealth is being created in the cloud, globally, remotely, a whole universe of people that have a different experience is going to open up. And I wonder about 
do you think that people are going to start giving more internationally or to things that are more in the cloud or we're going to see a rise of that or is it still going to be the place-based? Maybe I'm projecting a bit too much, but I think people are more open to giving something based on an idea or a certain philosophy. If you're a place-based, you cannot be very opinionated because you need to appeal to a lot of people in that place. If there's less of a restriction, that gets easier. I think there's also an opportunity for cities to become more opinionated, just like GitLab. Like we're super opinionated. We're transparent. We're iterative. You don't have to like those values. The most valuable company in the world is Apple. They love surprises, surprises externally, like a great marketing announcement. They love perfecting a product. And that's totally okay. That's a really successful way to make something. We do something different. It might not appeal to everyone. It's okay because we can hire people from so many places. We can fulfill all the roles we have with the people who really opt in. And I hope for cities because people will get more mobile because transport is easier, because their roles are more frequently remote, because their skills are more transferable might allow for some cities that are much more opinionated than the current ones. It's a really interesting thought. You're putting your flag in the sand and you're saying, this is who we are as a company, as a city, as a place. And if you want to join us, great. We'd love to have you. And if not, that's okay too, versus trying sort of water down to appeal to everybody. I do think that in the charter city space, you certainly see a bit of that. And maybe there can be space for more of that and for people really moving with their feet, as you're saying. I kind of like that framing of it. There's something quite refreshing about that when oftentimes people are trying to appeal to kind of everybody. When you think about charter cities of the future from a remote work perspective, what are some of the amenities that you would hope that they would have? I mean, I'm not inputting this into like the next charter city, but maybe I will after this question. Yeah, well... Considering recent events, freedom of expression and freedom of information or freedom from censorship seem pretty important. Apart from that, I think what's really important to the high income people who are likely to move is that there's a great amount of art there. There's outdoor art, installation art, but also culinary art. It seems to be something that it's hard to capture the value of that as the person creating it. If I start a great restaurant, I can charge the people who come, but also I generate much more interest in the city. If I make a great piece of art, I can sell that, but I generate much more excitement beyond that. In San Francisco, there was a band playing on the street and they had their QR code up and they made some bucks. But I think the impression they left on me and my excitement about the city increased because of them. And I think that went for a lot of people. And as an artist, it's hard to capture that. If you start a new city, you're able to capture more of that because, for example, you have a significant stake in the land in that city, and that will increase in value as people generate more art and people get more excited about living in that city. As an enthusiast of charter cities and also you as an enthusiast of charter cities, how do we get philanthropists more involved in charter cities? What are things that we should be letting them know about? You're doing a great job already. And I think the Charter Cities Institute has done a tremendous amount of work in that. I think we need a charter city to succeed on the scale of a Singapore or Dubai. I think being on that trajectory 
would get people very excited, both moving there, but also get investors excited and seeing that venture-style returns are possible on real estate projects. That would definitely help. And it comes to this question, too, of folks that are giving philanthropically to things that they want to see results in in one year or five years or 10 years or, like you, 30 years or 50 years. And I think that's a unique foresight. Does that excite you because it's long-term or does it actually make it harder for you to think about what it's going to be like? No, it's exciting. I think if you think about the internal rate of return on these projects, both it's very high, like it's a high percentage, but also it's sustained over a very long period. That's where you can make a difference. That's very true. I think it takes a certain kind of person to be able to also fill in the blanks. And that's one of the reasons I asked the question of how we do our best at the Charter Cities Institute to be able to tell that story and always open to feedback or ideas on ways to tell that story in ways that are compelling for those that aren't as able to fill in the years that they don't necessarily have an obvious growth trajectory right in the beginning. When I talk about an internal rate of return, I'm talking about philanthropically wealth created for the world versus money spent. What are some of the questions that we should be asking on a future of philanthropy podcast from your perspective or that you wish somebody was asking you? Why are cities not actively recruiting people and paying people to live there? It used to be that cities approached companies because you needed the jobs. And if you got the jobs, you got the people. Nowadays, people are much more attracted. Well, people are still attracted to companies, but also attracted to kind of personalities. I'd rather live in a place where top 10 famous people live than someplace else, because it's going to be more interesting. There's going to be more events. There's going to be more celebrity sightings. There's going to be a bigger economy. It's a benefit to have those people move to your city. But cities are not putting their money there. There's not a city that says, look, Kim Kardashian, if you move to us, we'll pay you. I think that's the future, just like companies stopped just posting their jobs, but are now actively recruiting people. I think the cities of the future will do the same. The attraction has changed, the pull, and why are we not compensating that pull? Are there in your mind any that come to mind that are doing that? I think almost all cities I see are still focusing on attracting companies. Who's the anchor, tenant? Exactly. Yeah, interesting. But I think they should be focusing on attracting famous people, attracting artists, attracting business people who make a difference. I think Miami was the first one who actively appealed to investors and entrepreneurs. I think we're going to see more of that. And maybe there's a way to not pay them in dollars, but pay them in stock in the upside of the city. It's a twist on it because you think of artists always sort of having to be the starving artist somewhere versus an artist. I assume that artists are flocking to you with this idea because if they're not, something is wrong because they are so valuable and they bring so much. And if we were compensating them for that in whatever way that was, they would be able to produce in a different way. And I think that that would be amazing. I really haven't heard this idea before. I love it. Well, first of all, I think the top artists are going to wake way more money in the future. They have an influence far beyond what they're now able to capture, and they're going to be able to capture more in the future. Second, among a lot of artists, there's a culture of not selling out. 
And we'll see how that interacts with giving them a bigger part of the upside. Does selling out count if you get stock in a city? (laughs) That's TBD. Who knows? And what you do with that stock and everything else. But there's different types of artists. There's a Banksy and there's a rap artist. We'll see different types of artists behave differently. In some of this space of nonprofits doing really innovative things, thinking about things differently, thinking about cities paying artists to move there, who are some other people, and you don't have to answer this right now unless one comes to your mind or you can tell me later, but who should we be talking to on this podcast to lift them up, to give them more airtime and more space in the innovative nonprofit world? She's a friend of mine, Caroline, who runs Third Sector, is, I think, doing amazing jobs making governments focus on outcomes instead of inputs. And she's very insightful there. And I think she deserves a much bigger audience. One of the age-old questions in philanthropy is who should be the purveyor of public goods? Should it be the state via taxes that are collected or should it be philanthropic institutions like religious institutions or nonprofits? The answer is both. And now I was a part-time civil servant And one of the things that you have if you are a civil servant is that there's a lot of scrutiny on your work and people are less accepting of mistakes. And that is extremely reasonable. If you collect taxes of people and you force them to give to you, you have less freedom in how you spend that money. There's less of a tolerance for fraud, for mistakes, for everything else. And that is extremely reasonable, but it also means that you cannot do things that are super innovative because with innovation comes risk. So I think the state should do things that are more proven and that the philanthropic institutions should do things that are more experimental. Thank you for that answer. The nerdy side of me that has been reading a lot about this really enjoys that. I think that that's our time for today. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Seeding the Future, a Charter Cities Institute podcast. To learn more, you can follow us on Twitter or visit us at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.